If you have a Bible with you, can I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. And right at the start, I have uh, have three questions for you. I like questions because they tend to invite people in. The first question is this. What sort of reputation has Windsor Baptist Church? Because churches tend to have reputations, don't they? That's the church where... Dot, dot, dot. That's the church that... And you finish the sentence. Tonight, I would like us to think about our reputation as a church. The second question is, how do we go about praying for one another? Last week, if you were here, you were given a copy of this. And I think there's more of these available at the the, the back desk. It's the prayer digest for 2009 and as I open it up it's just packed with names, packed with lots of people but it forces me to ask the question what do I pray for for these people especially when I don't know lots of them and maybe that's your experience as well and what do you pray for one another if you don't really know that person You see a name, dear God, bless them. Which is good. But what I want to offer tonight is a bit of a framework for how we might go about praying for one another. And the third question is this, why are we here? Now, I'm not wanting to have some massive philosophical discussion about why we exist, okay? But what I do want us to think about is why are you actually here this evening? I mean, the reality is you could be any number of different places. But why are you, why have you chosen to be here at this time? This evening we we are going to start this new series, uh, working our way through the New Testament letter to the Colossians. And over the next, and I think it's about seven weeks, actually, we're going to journey through the text, and I hope you're going to be able to make that journey with us. But before we dive in to the actual letter and the first 14 verses of chapter 1 in particular, I want to paint a bit of a picture of the context, the setting, a little bit of background information. And I realize that many of you will, will know this, but this was a letter written by Paul, who, who right at the start, if you have a look, at right at the very start, he identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of of God, And one of the reasons is that Paul needs to inform them of his credentials. He needs them to get a grasp of his credibility because the fact is that Paul has never been to Colossae. And so they probably might have known him by reputation, but many of the Christians there would probably never have met him. Now it seems that Paul was writing this letter from prison. That's apparent if you look across at chapter 4 verse 18, probably prison in Rome. But another question is, why did he feel the need to put pen to paper? Well, a couple of key reasons. One was that there was some rather suspect and dodgy teaching and spirituality that was doing the rounds at this time. And that really concerned Paul. It appears that people were trying to add to the gospel. It was a sort of Jesus plus mentality which is a mentality that still exists 
today. Now you don't so much pick this up in the first chapter, but it becomes obvious in chapter 2. Have a look at verse 4 of chapter 2 with me. Uh, Paul writes, I am saying this so that no one may deceive you with plausible arguments. Jump down to verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. And then verses 16 to 18, it becomes more explicit. Therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink or of observing festivals, new moons or Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Do not let anyone disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and the worship of angels, dwelling on visions, puffed up without cause, by a human way of thinking. Some great phrases in there. And so as a result, Paul's other key reason for writing to the Colossian believers is he wants to stress, listen folks, you have everything you need in Christ. Absolutely everything. You don't need to import anything else. You don't need to buy into anything else. Jesus is all and everything you need And so Paul writes what is an incredibly Christ-centered letter, a Christ-centered book, because he's wanting to realign this church's thinking that it really is all about Jesus. And so he goes out of his way to focus on Jesus. He goes out of his way to exalt Christ. This is, technical term, Paul's most Christological epistle. And he wants to ensure that this church stays on track. And to borrow a phrase from elsewhere in the New Testament, he wants them to focus their eyes on Jesus, full stop. And yet the reality is, we all know, that is so hard to do. It's so hard to stay focused on Jesus in today's world. Now one of the words that you encounter quite often today in a faith context is this word, spirituality. It's a very broad, all-encompassing term. And what you will hear more and more is people saying, do you know, I'm really into spirituality. And that's because we, we do live at a time whenever there is very widespread recognition that we are spiritual beings. And that's a good thing, and that's that's something actually that we as Christians and we as the church should celebrate. This rediscovered emphasis on the fact that we are spiritual beings. But how you express your spirituality, how you explore it, how you experiment with it is very much up for grabs. It's very much up to you. And so what you'll hear people talking about is the reality of a spiritual marketplace where what's promoted is this idea of walking up and down the aisles where you can select or opt for, well, Really, whatever you fancy. And therefore, people affirm and people, in fact, applaud this pick-and-mix approach to spirituality in the third millennium. And as I've said, I, I actually think that this rediscovery of an emphasis on spirituality is a good thing. But what I'm convinced is the challenge we face in a contemporary context is to promote and to stress the need for a Christ centered spirituality and I think that is what Paul was wanting to endorse and emphasize in this letter 
So that just gives you a little bit of context. It's not going into a huge amount of detail. No, we could say so much more. But that just gives you a little bit of background, a little bit of context. Let's actually now read the first 14 verses of Colossians chapter 1. And as I tend to do, I'm going to invite you to stand for the public reading of God's word. Okay? So Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all his people or for all the saints. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true word of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Take your seats, please. I I just love the way that, that Paul addresses these Colossians. He says, To the holy and the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Now remember, Paul is going to need to say, and in fact he goes on to say later on in this letter, some very strong things to them. But right at the start, from the opening greeting of this letter, what you discover is the man's heart for the church. They might be engaged in some suspicious activity. They might even be holding on to some rather odd or unbiblical beliefs. But at the end of the day... They are in Christ. And he refers to them as holy and faithful. And in verse 3 he goes on to say that every time he prays for them, the thing that comes to mind is he just wants to thank God for them. I'm sure you all know that it's really easy to be critical. It's really easy to be harsh. It's really easy to be judgmental of other Christians, isn't it? And it's not difficult to have a go at the church. I mean, there's plenty of reasons at times why we maybe feel we should have a go at it. But what I really hope is that we can adopt Paul's grateful heart. Yes, concerned at times. There's definitely a place for that. But ultimately, we need to come at this from a place where we are thankful for those who are part of the body of Christ, despite how different they may be from us and from the way we do things. 
But if they are in Christ, then I suggest we need to give thanks to God for them. Paul goes on to say that he is actually thankful for three things that characterize their lives. Their faith, their love, and their hope. Look at verse 4, where he lets them know that he's heard about their faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that they have for all the saints. And I want to suggest to you that that is a reputation to be proud of. That any church that is known for its faith in Jesus Christ and its love for other Christians is by anyone's definition a successful church. And if that was the reputation that Windsor Baptist had, that that's what people said in in finishing that sentence, that's the place where there's a real faith in Jesus. Do you know what else? They love one another. And they love other Christians. I've always found the words of of Jesus recorded in John 13 deeply challenging and yet somewhat uncomfortable. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And it's by this that all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And it seems that if if you really want to know who truly belongs to Jesus, if you want to know who are the ones that have made the decision to follow him, then part of what's involved is observing their attitude towards other Christians. And remember, love is, is more than a feeling. It's an attitude that reveals itself in action. So how do we go about loving another Christian, another brother or sister in Christ, as Jesus has loved us? What does that actually mean? Because it's got to go beyond just saying it. It means that we care about them. We care about others more than we care about self. That we choose to forgive, even when another brother or sister in Christ, hurts us. We refuse to hold grudges or fight back or allow our hearts to become bitter and resentful. It means that we go the extra mile. We help when it's inconvenient. We choose not to pass judgment. We choose not to speak behind one another's backs. And the list is endless. And the reality is that that kind of love is really hard to express. Particularly whenever you live in such a selfish, me-centered culture. But you see, that's why people notice it. Because it stands out. It actually screams at people. It reveals that you operate to a different agenda. You walk to the beat of a different drum. There is something distinctly different about your attitude. And that attracts. I'm not sure where, and and, and I'm new to this place in a sense, but I'm, I'm not sure where you're at with others, even within this local church. And of course, there will be differences of personality. There will be differences of opinion over a whole range of issues. But here's the bottom line. If we want to live authentic Christian lives of integrity, then we've got to discover what does it actually mean to love one another.
Because it's by this that a watching world, which is incredibly cynical, but it's by this they will know that we belong to Jesus. The church at Colossae, despite their issues, and every church has them, had an amazing reputation. Here was a church that were known for their faith in Jesus and their love for all the saints. And my prayer is, please God, help Windsor Baptist reflect that. But then notice where this faith and this love come from. Look at verse 5. Paul writes, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. Paul is so thankful that these Colossian Christians have a future hope, that they could see beyond the obvious. Their focus was not restricted to the here and now. They possessed a very definite eternal perspective. And Paul picks this up again later on in this letter. If you quickly flick over to chapter 3 and just look at verses 1 to 2, he actually encourages these Christians, listen, set your hearts and your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And again, that's one of those phrases that we're familiar with, but what does it actually mean? What does it actually mean to set your heart and mind on things above, not on earthly things? Well, it means don't become preoccupied with the temporal, because the hope of heaven is in your heart. You've got to readjust, you've got to realign your thinking to encompass that mindset. And that is such a consistent New Testament theme, this future hope. And so Paul, in writing to the Corinthian church, would explain that what God has prepared for them is beyond their wildest dreams. It's beyond your seeing, it's beyond your hearing, it's beyond your imagination. Peter would speak about an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you that will never perish and never spoil and never fade. But let's be honest, that gaining that and maintaining that outlook is hard, isn't it? It really is hard. Whenever you live in what seems like the real world, it's so difficult to lift your eyes up. The tangible, the physical, the seen, the here world... That's what tends to dominate our thinking. The pressures, the demands, the expectations, the struggles, the problems of living in this world on a day-to-day basis have got this understandable ability to just consume us. Completely consume us. And so it's easy to get attached to this place. And what often happens is that we stick the roots down deep. Far too deep. And yet, as the writer of Hebrews says, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. You know, where is home for the Christian? Where is your and my permanent address? We're all familiar with the phrase that that some people are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly use, And, and that may be the case But, you know, we've got to guard against becoming so earthly focused that we neglect the bigger picture. And I know in my own life so often that seems to be the case, that I'm just preoccupied with the here and now. And that sense of future hope, which impacts or should impact how I live my life here and now, tends to be a bit of a distant thing. So Windsor Baptist, let's... Pray that we would become a church characterized by faith in Jesus, by love for others who are in Christ, and by a hope, a future hope. Paul then also gives thanks for 
And he seeks to encourage this local church in realizing that, listen guys, all over the world, the gospel that you have embraced is bearing fruit and is growing. It says that in verse 6. You're not on your own. You're not isolated. In fact, you're not even exceptional. God is at work in his world. God is at work amongst other people groups than you. Don't become too introspective. Broaden your horizons. And that's so important for us to hear because 2,000 years later, God is still at work. The gospel's still bearing fruit. The gospel is still growing. And sometimes I know in the West we don't always see that. We don't always experience as much growth or as much fruit as we would like to. But you know, whenever you read current church growth statistics, there is real cause for thanksgiving. I just found some, and I mean, some of you are far more aware of these than I am. But the church grew more in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries since the time of Christ combined. With more than 2 billion adherents worldwide. Every year, it is estimated there's something like 27 million people profess faith in Christ the Saviour for the first time. It is estimated there will be 600 million more believers worldwide in 2025 than in 2000. And this morning, as Hillary was sharing with us, and this backs it up, that in 1800, portions of the Bible have been translated into 66 languages. Whereas now... I'm not sure, Hillary is here, as to how many languages the Bible has been translated, but it's 2,000 plus, I understand. And there is a vision that by the year 2025, it's going to be available in all languages. The gospel is growing. The church is growing often at the moment in the developing world, yes. But that is cause for thanks. Patrick Johnson has written a great book, The Church is Bigger Than You Think. And it is. It is. And on Epiphany Sunday, where there's a real focus on mission, as Roy reminded us this morning, be encouraged, because the gospel that was having an impact around AD 60 is still having an impact around AD 2009. Don't lose heart, folks. Even though sometimes, sometimes it seems in this context that there's not a lot happening. And so Paul gives thanks for these Christians on many levels and he prays for them. And if you scan down verses 9 to 12, you actually discover that Paul prays for three things for these Christians. And these are, I want to suggest, shouldn't, or these are things that should inform us on how we pray for one another. Here's what he prays for. He prays for knowledge, he prays for holiness, and he prays for power. In verse 9, he asks God to fill these people with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And in verse 10, he longs for growth in the knowledge of God. And in some ways, we're back, if you were here this morning, we're back to something we said about the importance of knowing God. Because that's what Paul was praying. You would grow in your knowledge of God. You would get to know God at a deeper level. And I know that that is the heart's cry of many of us, that we would get to know God at a deeper level. Do you know, the accumulation of knowledge was a big value in that culture at that time. And so Paul was wanting to stress the need for knowledge, but not knowledge in and of itself. Instead, what he was saying is, listen, you need to have a growing knowledge of God's will. You need to have a growing knowledge of God himself. But how do we actually approach that? Well, for me, a primary dimension of this has always got to be via our engagement with this. You know, God has chosen to make himself known in various ways. 
But this is one of the key ways God has chosen to make himself known. And therefore, at the beginning of a new year, it is never a bad, never an unwise resolution to renew your commitment to this. To say, God, in 2009, I want to get to know you at a deeper level. And I know that one of the ways for me to get to know your will and to get to know you at this sort of level is via an engagement with your word where you reveal yourself to me, through which you reveal yourself to me. And so I encourage you to pray for one another that we would grow in the knowledge of God. But then Paul prays for their holiness. And he actually links the two because he says, listen, a growing knowledge of God will ensure, and this is the phrase he uses, that you will live a life worthy of God. That you will live a life that bears fruit. And again, I know that's what many of us long for. That we pray, God, please help me to live a life worthy of you and work tomorrow. Please help me to live a life worthy of you in all my relationships. In my marriage. With my kids. God, help me to live a life worthy of you in my words. In my thinking. In my attitudes. And in my actions. That's a life, again, that is distinctly different. That is set apart for God. And then Paul prays that they would be strengthened with all power. And again, how much we need that. How much we need that. But the reason for needing or receiving this power is really interesting. Take a look at it. Because you would sort of think, well, that we need power to change the world. We need power to accomplish something incredible. And yet what Paul says at first glance just seems so ordinary. I pray for power in your lives so that you will endure And you'll be patient and you'll joyfully give thanks. And yet, again, when you think about it, to do those three things is actually really difficult. It's really hard to keep going. It's really hard to keep running this race that's been marked out before us. Times whenever you just want to throw the towel and you just want to quit. And that's why we need God's power. If we're going to endure to the end and if we're going to finish well. And what about the whole area of patience? How much do we need patience? Do you ever lose it? Did you lose it in the way here tonight as you drove here? Do you know we need patience? And if we're going to have patience, then we need God's power. We can't do it on our own. And so we will voice off and we will lose it with those who are closest to us often. And so Paul says, you know, I pray that you have received power so that you can endure, so that you can be patient, and so that you can joyfully give thanks. And that's how we should be praying for each other. And now we're back to the prayer digest. And in fact, as you look at these verses here is a bit of a framework and, and in some ways I should have typed this out and I should have copied this and I should have been able to give this to everybody but you see as you open this and you see as you come today or even tomorrow as you pray for Richard that you would pray Do you know, God I pray that Richard would understand your will I pray that Richard would gain spiritual wisdom that he would live a life worthy of God that he would bear good fruit that he would grow in knowledge of you, that he would be filled with your strength, that he would have great endurance and incredible patience, 
That he will live a life that's characterized by joy. And that he will always give thanks. Do you know, if we could pray those things into each other's lives in 2009, I reckon we might live differently. I know I would live differently if I knew that here was a church that were praying this for me. And then we come to the final verse, and I need to finish. And it's verse 13. And here's the foundation for all of us. And here is a great way for us just to lead into communion, to lead into the Lord's table. Verse 13. For he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And here's the answer to our third question that I asked us there. Why are we here? Why are we here? Do you know, I hope and pray you're here tonight because we are rescued citizens of God's kingdom who have been bought back and forgiven. And if anything should inspire us with joy and thanksgiving, then surely it's this reality that is ours as it was theirs in Colossae. And all because of Jesus. Next week, we're going back to a song. Because as we pick up at verse 15, we actually encounter one of the greatest songs of Scripture.